Welcome to the Poetic Resurrection Podcast, where we explore perceptions. How self-reflecting questions can give you a better understanding of self. I'm your host, Sonia Iris Lozada. Stay tuned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Poetic Resurrection. Today, we have Mark Pearson, who has been an attorney for 17 years, and he represents creative talent and entrepreneurship. Welcome. Right on. Thank you. It's, you know, okay, so you know, what's funny is just before we went on here and started recording, we were talking about mishaps with recording and all of that. And so before I was a lawyer, many, many moons ago, I worked in television and prior to that radio for a little while. And one of the first jobs I had when I was like 18 was in radio. And uh, my job was uh, working for um, uh, like radio stations used to be required to have like a public affairs program so that, that ran yes. on Sunday mornings. Yeah. So there was a, a guy, I, I believe his name was Marty Wasserman, and he interviewed people much like what you're doing, um, a lot of different writers and, and people in the arts, and he would just have a conversation with them. And my job was to record it and like work the engineering. And the very first show that I did, he did it with this guy who was, he was an interesting guy. He was like a serial entrepreneur, and he had started kind of his career by taking pieces of Candlestick Park uh, up after the famous catch game in 1981 and selling the turf. Um, this is before internet or anything, but he would, he sold the turf and that kind of sparked him to become an entrepreneur. And then he did a whole bunch of stuff after that, but they did the whole interview and I turned around after it was done and I hadn't pressed record. Oh my God. <laughs> my very first job, <laughs> my very first assignment. And was it your last? <laughs> so, so they had to do the whole interview over again. And luckily Marty, was a very nice person and he did not fire me. So, <laughs> but yeah, that was a good one. Well, you also, you know, there's something that you let slide with youth. Yeah. If you were older, you would have not been forgiven. But for Probably some not. reason, if you're young, if people forgive you a lot easier because they, they give credit to youth instead. Indeed. And that's one of the, the mantras that, that I've caught, kind of always preached was that the best lessons in life, especially for people that are going to work in the arts, is to get used to failing and figure out how to learn from those experiences. Because there's a lot of failure before you hit your successes in many, many instances. And how you deal with that and how you gleam nuggets of information uh, will carry you a long way. But you know, as I'm, as you know very well, like there's a lot of no, 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 a lot of rejection, a lot of this isn't going to happen. And you just have to take from that and learn and persevere. And so I think as a young person, if you are faced with a little bit of adversity, but at the same time, people, you know, are, are mindful of your inexperience in youth, that is a, a great benefit. And I remember I really appreciated that, especially later. I never made that mistake again. I made a lot of other mistakes, but I never made that particular mistake again. Um, and uh, who knows if if somebody, if you know, if Marty had been or, or the station manager had been, you know, more uh, aggressive in not wanting things like that to happen and not being very, my, you know, mindful of my age and youth, maybe I would have done or gone a totally different direction in my life, you know. And 
yeah, just a side tangent because we were laughing about not recording. So that was good stuff. Yeah. And and let me tell you, people out there, Mark is so right. I have made so many mistakes and failures and then it, you go through the heartache of saying, is this really right for me? Should I just move on? And yeah. that's really difficult. I did that with acting. After five years of not booking anything but a print job, I said, well, I think my career is over. And then I got a new commercial agent and I've been going out and out of 10 auditions that I've had, I booked one, which I know that doesn't seem really good, but people out there for commercials, it's almost like 50 to one. You have to have so many auditions out there to book one. Yeah. So, you know, it, you just need the opportunities to get out there and be able to pick yourself up after you hear a no. And, and you're lucky if you hear a no. It's usually right. silence. Silence. You hear yeah. nothing. Yeah. Now, I want to talk, let the audience know how I met you. Oh, yeah, please. That's good. Um, we went to what was the California Lawyers for what's the actual California title? Lawyers for the Arts. Yes. Yeah. And I met you through there. I paid my fee to be able to go to some of the seminars and webinars. And I saw you at a webinar where you were there with two other attorneys and they were talking, you were talking about music and publishing rights and all yep. of that. Yep. So even though I, I wanted to know about publishing and it was a little above my head because it kind of assumed that I was already studying law. And I don't, right. I don't, I don't know anything about law. That's why I went. <laughs> and I yeah, met, it was pretty meaty. Yeah, that was actually a lot of information. And if I understood law, it would have been even better because I know that it's geared more for people that are studying law. But I really like the fact and I met you through there. So it was yep. absolutely worth it. Yeah. And you have become my attorney who I use whenever I need info. And I thought that maybe we could cover some of the publishing things. And sure. Yeah. Because the last thing you and I talked about was copywriting. Mm -hmm. And the misconceptions that we have about copywriting. We think that it has to be copyright. And unless we go through the um, the government one, the copyright right, or, right. or .gov, I should say, that it's not copywritten. Can you talk about that and how yeah, copyright works? For sure. Yes. And, and that is a common misconception is that, you know, you need to do something in order to uh, maintain or, or, or establish your copyright rights. And really, the only thing you need to do is create a work and fix it in a tangible form. Those are the criteria for establishing copyright and, and establishing your rights in copyright. So what does that mean? That means that uh, copyright doesn't protect ideas. It protects the things that you actually fix into a tangible medium, meaning you write it down, you record it into a microphone, you uh, film it with a camera. Uh, and once something is created in that manner, then it is automatically covered by copyright law uh, under the under the United States copyright law. Um, and if you want to know what the code section is, it's gosh, I don't even remember now because I never <laughs> even look at 1701 101. Yeah. Uh, 
but I'm not, I, and the God, that's funny. I don't, I, I so, so rarely have to cite to it. I don't even remember the, the code section anymore, but anyhow, in the code section, it says that that's how you establish copyright simply by creating the work. Now you can register and registration is very important for many, many different types of people who are creating works because registration gives you additional protections under the law but you don't need to register your copyright in order to establish your copyright rights. And what are your copyright rights? So the minute you, or if you are working with other people, create a work. So copyright can be held by one person if there's one creator or by multiple people if there was a bunch of people that were uh, participating in creation of the work. Once you have created the work, so one, you know, if you co-author a book or you work with a bunch of different uh, musicians to create uh, music or write music, or if you are on a production team and you create a movie, there could be multiple people that own the work, or it could be, you know, one person. Once you have that established, then you have the absolute exclusive right to make copies, to distribute those copies, to perform or display those copies, uh, and to uh, make derivative works of those copies or of the work itself. Uh, derivative works meaning like sequels or next editions or taking the work and incorporating it in to another work. Think of like music sampling or photographs that were created that you wanna then incorporate into a book. So the original author has the absolute right over whether or not a derivative use can be made of their original copyright. So this gives a lot, you know, a lot of power and ownership to the author of works. Um, and uh, allows them, you know, a lot of flexibility. And again, you don't need to do anything to establish your copyright except create the work. Now, again, registration. So you can register, and, and most countries in the world have, an, have a methodology for registration. In the United States, the Copyright Office is actually under the Library of Congress. And so to register, you need to basically fill out a form, uh, list all of the authors, list all of the people that are claiming the rights to it, because it may be a situation where you created something, but by contract, you're, you've assigned it to someone else, and then describe what the work is, um, when it was created, and, and, you know, kind of the basic information about the work, and then submit samples of the work to the Copyright Office, uh, along with a form and a filing fee. And once you've done that, the form is, is processed and there's no hiccups. Every once in a while there's a hiccup, like the uh, maybe the sample you've submitted didn't come through correctly or got lost in the mail. So there can be minor hiccups, but, but in general, you know, once, once you've established your copyright and mailed that in, then you will become registered. And once you're registered, then there's some additional protections that you get under the law, most notably being the fact that you uh, are then entitled to statutory damages in the event that you have to sue somebody uh, for infringing on your copyright, so using your work without your permission. And you also would get your attorney's fees paid if you prevailed in court. Additionally, it's presumptive evidence of your ownership, meaning that the law will recognize your ownership of the material. And if somebody else is claiming that it's theirs and you have it registered, they have to defeat your registration before they can try to continue on with their claim that they somehow own it or co-own it. And it also establishes your rights for purposes of doing things with third parties. So for instance, if I am a, uh, let's say I'm a music supervisor uh, for a film and I want to put a piece of music in the movie uh, that I'm su music supervising, 
I'm going to want to know that the person giving me the license to the music actually owns the music that they're licensing to me. And so if they can show me a copyright certificate, then that's fantastic. I can, that's presumptive evidence of ownership. Then on my part, my due diligence as the music supervisor is that eventually the film or the project is going to need distribution and the distributor is going to want to know that everything that's in that film, whether it be acting talent, still images, clips, music, everything that's in the film, including the written work or the script or whatever that, that might've been the background for the film, they're going to want to know as a distributor that they're not going to get sued by a third party. So they're going to want to see these certificates and proof that the material is owned by the person that licensed it to the film studio or the person under contract. That and the statutory damages we, we can talk about are the two really big reasons why uh, registration is so important is because it will be instrumentally uh, helpful when trying to do things with third parties like distributors or music supervisors or book publishers or anybody who wants to use your work and needs to know that you actually own what you're licensing to them. Now, I am writing a story right now, and it's not poetry, which is normally what I do. And as I'm writing it, I'm almost visualizing it like a film. And I remember my friend who works at one of the studios told me that now the studios want something more like an actual short story as a treatment versus mm -hmm. an actual treatment. So I am going to present it once it's written. I should copyright that before I go forward. And when do you use the Writers Guild as copywriting some, as copying something? Yeah, so the Writers Guild is, is a little bit different. You know, registering with the WGA does not establish copyright rights. What right. that does is it puts you in a position where when it comes time to use that work as the underlying work to create a movie or a film or a series or some other something else out of what you created and registered with the WGA, it'll put you in a position where you're then going to be protected by the union for things like residual payments and for credit that you would be entitled to in that particular project. So registering with the WGA is really important, but it is, it is important to note that that is different from registering the copyright. And again, you don't need to register the copyright in order to you know, set up, set yourself up with the WGA, but that doesn't mean that you've then registered with the copyright office. You wanna kind of do both things for two different reasons. One is to protect your rights in the work and the other, that's copyright. And the WGA is to protect your economic interest in the work so far as it's used in, a, in, in the entertainment industry to create something else. Yes, because what I, my plan is I, want to extend that to be a book but in the meantime is a short story so would I register it as a short story for people out sure. there that I want to do the same thing you register as a short story does that cover the long version of it no so what you would then have to do is is you know so you can absolutely register the short story first mm -hmm. and then after that you would register the book that it ended up in and it may be that the book is a collection of short stories or the short story may be, may become a chapter in the book it may even be edited when it becomes a chapter in the book so what you would end up doing is you would register that short story and then once it was incorporated in some form or fashion into a larger work you would register that work and then you would cite in your registration 
to the original copyright in the short story saying, this is incorporated into what I'm registering now. And I'm not trying to establish a new copyright in that portion of it that's already been copyrighted. I'm establishing the copyright in all of the other portions, including any changes that might've been made. So at the end of the day, you, you would have two copyright works and they would work basically together to protect your rights uh, as far as registration is concerned. You, we see this a lot. I remember when I was younger, I really liked Stephen King and he did a bunch of different short story books. And a lot of the short stories that were in there were originally published in magazines and, and in other places before they were collected into the, the book. And so when, when presumably when, uh, when his attorney would register the book, he would just cite to any of the short stories that had already been published and registered and say, okay, these ones have already established registration. Here's what they are. And then the rest of the book, as well as the way the book was laid out, would all be protected by the new copyright for that book itself. So a little bit technical, but it's a fairly fairly easy process to navigate. Uh, you also have the option if, let's say, you're working on a script and you get to a point where it's in good shape and you want to start submitting it and you want to make sure that you're that you have your rights protected, but mostly you wanna make sure that you have the ability to prove to whoever you're submitting it to that you are actually the author through your registration, but then ultimately you end up making additional changes to the script or you, you know, write more for the script or whatever might come from that. You can then do an adapted copyright as well. So instead of saying, I've taken something I, I created before and incorporating it into a larger piece um, and registering that new larger piece by itself, you can say this, I'm now registering an updated version of an older piece. And oh, so okay. there's two different ways that you can kind of do that. And there's some tricks and some nuance to it in terms of whether or not a work had previously been published, meaning made available to the public in some way, um, or whether it's uh, something that, you know, was still private and hadn't been made available to the public. Um, so there's some nuance there as to which way you want to think about going, but the copyright office is pretty flexible. And again, it's just there to make sure that you, that you have a place to, to put the, the world on notice of your rights and to be able to effectively claim these additional rights. And so I think it's probably important that we talk about, you know, we talked about that it's important to have your registration certificate to prove your ownership and that that document, because it's something that you have to attest to under penalty of perjury, is then presumed to be accurate and true. So that, that's great. The other big portion of the Copyright Act and, and where it gives uh, copyright owners a lot of power is in the statutory damages provision. Under U.S. law in general, when somebody in civil, civil cases, right, when somebody does something wrong to you, and you have to sue them, you're suing them for money damages. Basically, you're saying to the court, so-and-so did something wrong. It ended up affecting me. And so they should have to pay me money damages. Our court system outside of contracts that enable the court to do so is not in favor of injunctive relief, meaning making someone stop using a work or forcing someone to do something. It's really set up to make to do this damages transaction saying you did something wrong so you have to compensate the person that you did the wrong to okay so when proving a copyright infringement so if somebody you know displays your work or performs your work or makes copies of your work or makes a derivative of your work uh, or violates one of you know one of your copy one or more of your copyright rights 
and you go to, to sue them, which doesn't happen very often, but for sake of argument, we talk, mm-hmm. we'll talk about a lawsuit. Most copyright cases settle. Your burden of proof in proving that the person used your work without permission is simply that. You would go to court and the judge would say, okay, you know, do you, you know, show proof that you own the work? You have proof. You can show that you created it, whether you're registered or not. You can show, you know, that you, you'll have some uh, evidence showing that you drew that picture or you wrote that book. And then did the other side have permission? Effectively, the only way to really have permission is in a written agreement. And so if the other side does not have a written agreement showing that you gave them permission to use the work, um, they then lose. And then there's one third criteria that says that they have to have had access to your work. So there is the idea that you could put two people in you know, separate rooms with an orange crayon and they could draw the exact same thing on, the piece, on a piece of paper. Um, and so one of the criteria for copyright infringement is that one party had to have access to the work that they infringe. That's also very easy to show, especially if it's a direct copy and and you can show that, you know, as simple as, you know, your copy, your, your book was available for purchase in a store and had sold many copies. That's enough to establish, you know, that. How about if you haven't sold access. many copies? Like, even if you haven't sold many copies, if it's pretty clear, you know, uh, by the fact that it's word for word on a book, where, where the access issue gets tricky and there's been litigation is in music where someone mm. is accused of stealing someone's song or, or you know, writing a similar song to someone else. Uh, this came up recently in the Blurred Lines case. And also the real famous one was George Harrison's uh, My Sweet Lord, where he basically said that he'd never heard the song uh, He's So Fine by the Shirelles, which, was, which he was accused of ripping off. And he told the court, well, I'd never heard that song before. Well, it was literally number two on the charts when the Beatles were number one. So trying to argue that he'd never heard that song you know, was <laughs> what fell on deaf ears. So that's where the access comes in. So essentially, if you go to court and you, and you show to the, the court that you created the work, there's no, there was no agreement for you to allow someone else to use it. And they used it anyhow without your permission. And they clearly had access to your work by, by the nature of the work itself. You win the case. It could literally take five minutes to prove your case in a copyright infringement claim. But what do you win? We talked about the fact that the court system wants to award you monetary damages for the, for the fact that your work was infringed. How do you show the court what you, how you were damaged? That can be very difficult, tricky, and expensive. You might have to call in forensic experts. You might have to go through a whole discovery process to find out what the other party made from selling the work that they infringed, or you might be able to prove that had, you know, you're a photographer, you might have to prove through expert testimony that had you had the opportunity to license it, this is what your licensing fee would have been. So it can be very expensive to to prove your damages. And it also might indicate that the damages that you suffered might not be very high in terms of monetary value. So if you register your copyright, and again, there's some nuance or some timing, you have to register it within a certain amount of time of when it was published or created. If you follow all that and you register your copyright, you then have the ability to claim statutory damages. This is not available if you're unregistered. And what that says is instead of having to prove your damages after you've proved your your claim, that the judge in the case, depending upon how willful he believes the infringement was, will award you anywhere from 20 to $150,000 per infringing occurrence. So 
this is why these cases settle with, with registered works because the other side, if they cannot show that you gave them permission, they're going to lose. And because of the statutory damages provision, if they distributed you know, 10 copies of your work without your permission, that would be 150,000 times 10 that they would be facing in, in damages. And so almost inevitably that would lead them to wanna to settle and you would make them a more reasonable offer than you know, $10 million. And then they then they settle the case. So copyright claims don't get litigated a lot for that reason, especially where the work is registered. So that is a huge, huge reason to register your work is so that you can take advantage of statutory damages provisions. It also puts a lot of leverage in your pocket if you're a little guy. So, you know, if Disney infringes on your rights, uh, not that they would. But if they did and you weren't registered, you would have to prove damages against Disney and they would make it so expensive that you would, you know, it would just never happen for you. But with the statutory damages provision, you don't have to worry about all those types of legal maneuverings and depositions and pleadings because you can just go straight to the court and prove your case and then claim and make the claim for statutory damages. So it puts a lot of leverage in people who might not have the same economic power as the party that infringed on their rights. So it's a great thing for creatives. Mm -hmm. um, and the nice thing about registration is it's not very expensive. Unlike patents and trademarks, which are the other intellectual property law areas and the registration processes for those and the fees that you have to pay are, are you know, it's a pretty good, pretty good chunk of money and, and an investment to get a patent or a trademark, patent more so than trademark. But for a copyright, it's, you know, it's either 35, 65 or 85 bucks, depending upon the work. Even as a lawyer, when I register a copyright for, for clients in like music and, and film, it's like a half an hour of my time to put together the application and get it sent in. So it's just not that expensive. And the benefit that you get and the peace of mind that you have a lot of rights in your pocket, should somebody do something that was inappropriate with your work uh, is really great. So I encourage everybody to register your copyrights and copyright is good for the life of the author plus 70 years. So it is something that you can gift to your estate or to your heirs, which is great, especially if it's something that's, that's generating income. Again, there's some nuance to that because there's works that predate that change in the Copyright Act that created the Life Plus 70 uh, that started in 1978. So works that are pre-1978 have a different set of rules for how long that they are uh, available under copyright. I copyright everything of mine just to have peace of mind. What happened with me is people have been using some of my poetry and they take a section out of it and they make quotes mm -hmm. and they put it on their website, which I actually don't mind. To me, it's good advertising. <laughs> so I don't mind that they do that. I have not had anyone use an entire poem or anything like that. But I am writing that short story, which eventually I do want to make a full length. But as a short story, I do want to see if I could. Get, it's got a lot of film quality to it. Right. That I, as I'm writing and I go, OK, this should really be a treatment. You know, it's like, it's something that I think is is a doable thing for film. So I will be doing that. And but now I also want to ask you about music. Okay. If you sample, and I know that you owe people because I have had friends who have recorded and they're well known and they yeah. took a sample out of like a really old song mm -hmm. that is 
but there's an estate to it. Oh, yeah. And the estate said, no, it doesn't matter if it's over 70 years old. We have the rights. How does that work when it's more than the 70 years? How do they actually have a claim to that? So first, let me address like the the sample issue itself, because it ties into what you originally had had mentioned off the top of the question about the fact that you said that sometimes people will take snippets of your poetry and put it on a website or whatnot, whatnot. recognize that any use of someone's copyright, even a piece of it, is copyright infringement. You don't have to take the whole work or a substantial amount of the work, like literally in music, a sample, one bar of music, one note, musical note played could trigger a copyright infringement case. And so when someone takes a line or a snippet of your poetry and, and, and uses it, uh, they are infringing on your rights. And again, you have every right as the author to allow that. Um, and so, you know, if you think that it benefits you, if they've given you credit and whatnot, and, um, and you're happy with it, there's no reason to take action in every single case. But recognize that is an infringement of your rights. And you would have every right to, to do something as simple as send them an email saying, hey, you're using my thing. Uh, my work on your website, would you, you know, I, I'm allowing you to permission to do that. Uh, that way, you know, you have some methodology of a license in place that you can then rely on uh, if you ever needed to show that you were actively policing your rights. Same thing happens with, with music and samples is that any little piece of music that you take and incorporate as a sample into your work, the law says that that is copyright infringement. You have to have a license. It's also tricky in music because you have to have two licenses. You have to have a license in the composition rights, so the songwriting, the lyrics and melody of the of the song, and you have to have a copyright or a license into in the copyright for the sound recording, the actual recorded version of that composition. So when you sample something, you're sampling both the underlying composition and the sound recording, and so you have to have two licenses when you do a sample. Presumably, if someone used a work without permission, they would be facing liability from two different parties, maybe a music publisher and a record label. Or if it's a band that owns all of their rights, the band would have two claims on two separate copyrights. And again, we talked about if you are if you have your works registered, now it's 150,000 times two to start on the statutory damages. And then we look at how many copies were distributed. So there's a lot of different nuance and, and a lot of uh, risk if you are going to sample music without permission. And even if you're just taking, you know, a half a bar or a, a note that's dropped in, if it's recognizable in somebody, you know, then you're going to face uh, potential liability and, and, and strong risk. And so the way to, to deal with that is to simply get a license. Uh, some people have been pushing for a compulsory license, meaning like a set rate to license samples, and it would be based maybe on the duration of the sample that you're that you're taking. Like the longer the sample, the more you pay. There's been a lot of different ideas floated around on a statutory methodology for um, setting up sample licensing. But for now, sample licensing is uh, a free for all. It's the wild, wild west. It's whatever the publisher and the and the record label want to and can negotiate with the person that wants to use that sample. So for instance, if you're sampling something that, you know, I created, you might get it for free. If you're sampling the Rolling Stones, you might be paying $10 million. So it's a total free-for-all uh, on sample licensing, but you have to do it. Otherwise you face the risk and, um, uh, and it can come back to bite you. And 
it can, yeah, it can get really ugly on that sample front and just recognize that there is no, well, if I only use this amount, I'm okay. That doesn't, that's not how it works in copyright. You use any amount and it's potentially not okay. Hi everyone. Welcome back to part two. <laughs> so we talked about in detail about copywriting. Yeah. Like we were talking about when I did, you know, as an actor, as a writer, you do searches on Google for yourself to see sure. where things are several websites that do quotes and it's the same quote it was taken from a poem of mine tomorrow okay and what they're using is if i was to die today would i have lived my life and you know so it uses a rendition of that and then they do give me credit which i think it's great something like that i should i write to them and say hey i give you permission for this do i even address it yeah my question was, oh, we already answered about me writing to the people that are using my part of right. my poem, then that they have. I'll... Now, what does that tell them? I mean, you, you said something that it means that I'm on top of my. More so in patents and trademarks where you have an affirmative obligation to police your your rights, meaning if you don't tell someone that's infringing on your trademark to stop, you could lose your trademark rights. Really? Yeah. So in copyright, it's a little different. So with a trademark, I mean, you know, someone could come up with the same mark to use for lots of different things. Uh, presumably with copyright, there's only one person who could ever create that, that work in the way that it's created. Again, we talked a little bit about the idea of you could put two people in a, in a separate rooms with an orange crayon and they could, you know, make the same drawing. But in general, Copyright is going to be very specific and it's going to be, you know, a work of art that only exists once in the world. So while you still have an obligation to protect your copyrights and to make sure that people aren't using them, um, you don't have that same affirmative obligation like you do in trademarks and patents where you could actually lose your right. Instead, with copyright, what might happen is if somebody uses it for a long time and you don't assert your rights, you could you could potentially lose the ability to get a monetary gain from them in damages if you were to go after them they could basically claim hey i've been using this forever you never said anything like i shouldn't owe you a ton of money i didn't know i was doing anything wrong now that you've told me about it i'll stop there's also potential statute of limitations you know issues with that especially if it's a contractual right that you established your copyright rights through or if it's a, a license so there's a lot of reasons why you want to at least send an inquiry and what you would do, especially if it was somebody where you where you weren't objecting to their use, like it wasn't a problem, is you would essentially, you know, what you could do is send them an email saying, hey, I see that you're using a quote from one of my poems. I am the copyright holder of the rights in that poem. And I just want to let you know that I am granting you a non-exclusive, limited, fully terminable uh, right to continue to use my quote the way that you're doing it. I'm happy to allow that. And then, you know, send that to them in an email and then ask them to acknowledge the email back. So that's a good way of handling it is basically just telling them it's okay, you know, recognize, you know, putting them on notice that you own the rights, telling them that, that it's, it's okay that they use it, but then also making sure that they understand that you, you're not giving them anything more than the right to use it the way they're doing and, and for nothing else, and that you can terminate that whenever you want. So that way later, if you found out like they were trying to sell t-shirts or something with your quote on it, you'd immediately say, no, 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 that's outside of the scope of what I allowed. 
And so I'm terminating that and, and, you know, I'm coming after you. Yeah. Cause what you don't want is someone, you know, thinking that, okay, if they're using it in this way, then they can use it in any way they want to. So, yeah. So that's what, that, that's kind of the reason behind why you want to put them on notice. And again, if you want to let them do it, that there's no problem with that. You just want to basically create a license that is recognized for that one type of use and that, you know, recognizing your rights, your, your, true and, and underlying rights as the copyright owner and then making it clear that you know what you're giving them you could terminate if you if you if you felt like you needed to yeah I had a friend of mine who's an artist and he does murals and yep. there's one mural that he did that you know some company took and made postcards out of it they made all of oh. that he could not find who was doing that and it ended up being a company in China took pictures yeah. of it and yeah and they were, but they were selling them in the U.S. So uh-huh. how does something like that work? So that's another reason. So that's actually a third reason why registering your copyrights can be beneficial is that if you are registered, then you are now protected under federal law, right? Because copyright is federal law. And should you become aware of, you know, illegal or bootleg merchandise, you can stop the distributor usually by telling them then the distributor could be a store or wherever it's coming through. Usually you can stop them by, you know, sending them a, a letter, a cease and desist letter saying, stop selling this. You don't have any rights to it. I am the copyright owner. If you continue to sell it, I'll be forced to sue you. And then they'll usually stop. Um, again, if they continue to use it, you would have the right to sue them, right? Because the infringement is not necessarily limited to the party that printed the work the infringement flows from that. So it would be attributable to the store that's selling the work. Um, and so, um, so, you know, that's kind of another unique uh, aspect of copyright is, in, you know, the infringement can come from multiple parties with one kind of infringing act. And so usually that will stop it, but sometimes people will continue to sell uh, or they'll ignore the cease and desist. And then you have every right to, you know, sue the store where it's coming from. Um, especially if you can't get to that Chinese party that's actually, you know, creating it, the, you know, the copy without permission initially. And there's some limitations to that too. So if we think about it, you know, I think if, if, a lot, if some people that are listening might be going, wait a minute, how does something like YouTube exist when there's all kinds of infringement on YouTube? How come we can't just sue YouTube for that? So online internet activity for a website that's primary purpose is to is to have a site where people post user generated content they have a shield provided that they comply with certain aspects of the copyright act to so that they're not uh, liable for um, the acts of the people that use their platform so youtube is not liable for somebody posting a video on their channel that has copyright you know, material that they don't own in it. Facebook is not liable for, but there, there has to be a mechanism and that's built into. And if you go and look at the, at the websites, there's actually, a, if you think somebody's infringed your rights, there's actually a way that you can fill out an online form and that material will get taken down uh, by the, by the different um, websites uh, that, that, that do me. this. Yeah. Someone got a hold of one of my acting photos and again, you know, Googling myself, and I'm like, what is this? And it was on YouTube and it has all these actors photos, but it was really promoting like a porn oh, website. Yeah, yeah. And I had a right to YouTube and I said, I am a legitimate actor. I do not do porns. And yeah. this 
web, you know, this advertising that they have is like if I'm in it, because even one of the people that wrote a comment says, are mm-hmm. these women really the ones in the porn film? The, yeah, yeah. Uh, we were not. <laughs> and, so, and they took it down pretty quickly. Yeah. And, and so you're you're dealing with actually two rights there. You're dealing with your federal right, your copyright right. OK, uh, because you presumably own your the photograph that was taken or there's a photographer out there that owns it that, you know, and, and are working in connection with that, that is, is not happy about that. And then you also have a state right in your in the commercial use of your name, image, voice and likeness, your publicity rights. And so if somebody is using your name, image, voice or likeness for commercial gain without your permission, that is actionable under state law. And earlier, for some reason, I drew a blank on the code section for the Copyright Act. And of course, I remembered it immediately. So it's 17 USC 101 is the Copyright Act under federal law, uh, USC meaning United States Code. The, in California, the code for your publicity rights is uh, California Civil Code 3344. And that basically says that no one can use your, yeah, and, and this applies to anyone, but especially for people who make a living off of their uh, publicity rights, that no one can use your publicity rights, your name, image, voice, likeness, biography, uh, without your permission uh, for commercial gain. So there, it's clearly they were using it to try to promote their um, you know, pornographic film uh, using your publicity rights, as well as the copyright rights in the photograph of you. Uh, and so, you know, you kind of had a, a, a double whammy against them in terms of uh, a claim. So, um, yeah. So YouTube uh, did take it down pretty quick. Yeah. And then, and, and of course, yes, exactly. And so that that's what happens. You file that claim with YouTube and they immediately take it down. And what happens is, is they don't have any obligation to even look at it. Basically, if you file the claim, you're, you're, when you make that claim with YouTube that, that, that your rights are being violated, you actually you know, electronically attest under penalty of perjury that you're not making up the fact that you have those rights. And so YouTube's obligation at that point is to take it down immediately and send a notice to whoever originally posted it saying a copyright claim, a right of publicity claim has been lodged against this video or, or whatever that you have posted on our site. If you feel that you do own the rights to this, you can dispute it. Otherwise, it's going to stay down. And the problem is if they dispute it, then that would ratchet up your ability to claim damages because now they're like lying on top of using your work. So most times when people get that notice, it stays down and then they'll just edit you out and put it, put it back up without you in it. So, yeah. um, yeah. So the online world is very, is very interesting and it's created a lot of legal issues and a lot of crazy stuff that people never thought they would ever have to deal with, with copyrights and, and, you know, abuse of platforms and all these other things that, that um, is, is sometimes uh, fun to observe and be part of. And, but also like the actual human impact can be kind of hurtful. Like, you know, if you see, see yourself used or your music used or your poetry used or your picture used in a in a manner that's that you don't agree with can be that can be hurtful over and above like you know a lawyer looking at it as a really interesting you know case study and so there's the you know the human element of these things is not to be under under appreciated or underestimated because yeah I mean people do bad things and uh 
Yeah, and the internet is is rife with that. Yes, and then, and then I once got contacted by an attorney in China. He was representing a company, and they wanted to use my name for it. And I said, "You cannot use my name." Yeah. And so this attorney knew that I had the rights to to do that. He wasn't going to fight it, but he says the client is going to use your name regardless. They are not listening to my legal advice. They're going to use your name. And it was in China, also. Yeah, yeah. So, I yeah. Then it becomes like a, an economic issue as to whether or not you want to try to take any action against them because they're in China and it's going to be expensive, and you'd have to hire a Chinese counsel. And what is how does the Chinese law going to work? How is it going to respect your rights? What kind of remedy could you could you possibly foresee? And yeah, yeah, it's tricky. Yeah, and I've done the searches on it to see if I could find it. I haven't seen it yet. I haven't been able to find it because it kind of annoyed me that their clients said we're going to use it anyway. We don't care. Yeah. You know? and, yeah. Like, and we saw, you know, China for a long time was rife with copyright infringement, especially like bootleg DVDs and posters yeah. and books and all kinds of and music. And essentially, while most nations in the world, almost all at this point, uh, that aren't under some type of an embargo are signatories to what's called the Berne Convention, meaning they respect and will uphold the copyright laws of all the other nations that are signatories to the Berne Convention. China has been a signatory for years, but for a long time, they did not enforce the rights. They basically just turned the other way. And if a complaint was made, they just ignored it. Then all of a sudden they realized that they were losing out on a lot of potential tax money and a lot of potential um, economic revenue for stores and legitimate businesses selling that merchandise. And so they all of a sudden realized that like by allowing it, you know, bootleg and counterfeits, they were actually hurting their own economy. And so they, they started to crack down and enforce uh, outside country IP rights. Now it's a, a little bit easier to deal with, you know, infringement, still difficult because of just the time and space and the the secrecy in the around China and trying to get trying to find people there and all of that. So it's still difficult, but um, it's a lot better than it was. And you see far less, you know, counterfeit merchandise coming out of China than you did. Still there, it still happens, but it's just less. That's good to know. Cause I mean, and me, I don't have the resources to go after them. Yeah. You know, right. I, I just don't. So yeah, because I am want to present what I wrote, the short story, which I'm working on. And thank you so much for helping me with the compilation. Oh, right on. Yeah, because I had no idea. And going back to the previous copyright, you just say, okay, I copywrote this. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's basically only five new poems. But yep. I actually do not read my stuff unless it's copywritten. Gotcha. I, I don't put it on YouTube. I don't read it in an interview. Unless it's registered. Yes, unless it's, unless registered. it's registered. Yeah. 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 Because and, you and never know. That makes sense. And once that's done, then it's done. There are other things that I know that you work a lot with music people. Yes. And when we talked about sampling, I understand the sampling part of it. It reminded me of also the the writer, the script writer of the movie Amistad. Okay. A woman wrote a book. From what I remember, because this was a long time ago, is that he used her book as one of the reference books to write a script. He used about sure. 
five or 10 different references. Sure. But he did use quite a bit from her book. Okay. And so the whole lawsuit was that he did not have permission. Yeah. And that's a derivative rights issue. And that happens a lot with people who write, especially if you're going to be writing a script that's based on a historical person or a historical incident, because you're going to research it, right? Because you want right. to get your script right. And so you have to be mindful how much you might take from any one source. And if you're taking from a source, certain things uh, that are historical in nature are not subject to copyright protection, right? The fact that, you know, something happened for real mm -hmm. is not copyright protectable, but the way somebody wrote about it or the order that they put it in, or the way that they drew connections between things like all of that could end up having copyright protection as creative works. And so if you then are looking at source material, you know, and it's written like, let's say it's like a Tarantino film, right? It's written in a non-linear fashion. Mm -hmm. And you then build your screenplay in that same non-linear fashion as the, the resource material that could get you in trouble. Not because you're telling the story of, you know, Amistad, but because you're presenting your information in the same manner that it was presented in the resource material. And that layout and that aesthetic of telling a non-linear story or something is copyright protectable. This is why it's like, um, I love sports and sports is all about statistics and statistics are not copyright protectable, but the way that you put them and lay them out in a book, that is. So, you know, yeah. So, so there, you know, copyright comes in, in many, many fashions and creativity comes in many ways. And, you know, we think of creativity as you know you your mind immediately goes to music or artwork but there can be creativity that streams from you know non-traditional sources and so you have to be very careful when you're you know when you're using someone else's work that you don't cross that line and sometimes it's hard to hard to do um but uh that's what the court system ends up being for right? and it's those kind of gray area cases are the ones that end up being litigated yeah, somebody needs to be able to figure it out and decide. It can be, get tricky. Yeah, anytime your law is like based on something that man made up, so copyright is like a made up concept, right? There's always going to be loopholes and gray areas and tricks and all that. So I'm not surprised. Now, what happens is I'm actually using, for my story, I'm using quite a few uh, references. Sure. There's only like two books on the one reference that I'm using. Yeah. If it's in the background as a story, but it's not the main story, but you're using like their translation, it's a, it's a book that translated a certain culture. Okay. And it's a, a concept. So they do something like that. So you're basically borrowing their concept in the story. How do you, do you contact them? I mean, I don't know what to do with that when there's only like two books. Yeah, if you feel like it's too close to somebody else's work and you want to make sure that you're okay, certainly, yeah, you know, that makes, so you have a couple of things. First is you would check to make sure that the, the work that you're worried about potentially infringing isn't in the public domain. Meaning oh, it, it is, hasn't, it, And if it is in the public domain, then you don't have to worry about it at all. Oh, I'm, so, I'm sorry, public domain. No, actually the person is still alive. So. And owns it. Sometimes works for people that are alive may be in the public domain. If it was created pre-1978, 
and it didn't meet some requirements when we moved to the new copyright system, it might've gone into the public domain, but that would be one place that you would look. And again, this would all have to be researched. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I wouldn't know, you know, unless we looked at it, but that's the first thing I would do is like, try to figure out, okay, is this public domain? And public domain just simply means uh, that it's a work that's no longer protected by copyright because is basically too old to be protected by copyright. Or there's other, some other, some back, there used to be formalities that you had to follow in order to establish copyright. Very famously, the movie Charade, and also very famously, the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Mm-hmm. They were back, back when those films came out in the 40s, you had to have a copyright notice with the date on the title card in your movie. So if you watch older movies, the very first thing that will come up is it'll be the name of the film and then it will have a copyright notice. Oftentimes the date will be in Roman numerals. Yes, I remember seeing that. Yeah, and then it will you know, have a couple of other things. It might have like a seal from the Writers Guild or something like that on there, on that title card. And that would be the first thing that would pop up. So those two movies famously had the wrong, had either the wrong date or they had it out of order. Like you, you would have to say copyright, circle C date, and, and they forgot the circle C, I think on charade. And I think on it's a wonderful. So essentially the minute those movies came out and were made available to the public, they were in the public domain instantaneously because they didn't meet the criteria that was required at the time. Yeah. So there are a few wow. works that are like that out there. Yeah, I, and but so when they revised the Copyright Act, they got rid of that. So you do not have to put a copyright. People will put a copyright notice because that helps them uh, if they ever had to prove somebody stole their rights, be able to say, hey, I had a copyright notice on there. How could they miss it? But there's no longer a requirement that you have a copyright notice on your material. Um, and it's because of that, because there's a few things that like literally they didn't they didn't we didn't wait you know, a period of time. And then it fell in, it was literally dropped in the the first time those movies were shown in a theater or yeah, I guess that that was the only way to distribute them. It was shown in a theater. They went into the public domain instantaneously. Yeah. Oh my God. Crazy. Yeah. Wild stuff. Yeah. The thing I'm referring to is an actual um, man took a certain old writing and translated it. And translate it. So translations are definitely subject to copyright. Yeah. So, oh, I'm sure they are because they, yeah. they're very specialized. Absolutely. And so, um, okay. So now I know, and I'll contact yeah, so like you. All, something like I'll that. contact and, you about that later. Yeah. And again, like we're talking about source material. It might be that what's being written about is, you know, is something that, you know, the actual underlying subject matter doesn't have copyright protection. So is it that you're taking something that, it is the creative element and using it or are you just citing to you know a historical issue or something else that doesn't there's also um fair use that can come into play mm-hmm. fair use basically allows someone to use copyright protected material without permission because they have some fair use claim fair use is basically if you're using someone else's work for educational purposes, if you're using someone else's work for purposes of criticizing or commenting, commenting on that work itself, um, if you're using uh, someone's work, uh, work for um, criticizing and commenting, uh, educational purposes, uh, if you're using it in a, uh, a library context. So there's a number of different ways where you can make a fair use claim. Now, fair use is a defense to copyright infringement, meaning you could still be sued 
And there's a lot of lawsuits that happen where the plaintiff in the case knows they're going to lose on a fair use defense, but they're so angry over the use that they sue anyhow. Yeah. Because they just, yeah. They just want you to stop. They just want you to stop. Exactly. So we've seen that happen a few times, uh, especially in music. Uh, that'll happen every once in a while, especially in sampling. But if you have a fair use argument, meaning you're, criti- you're essentially you're criticizing or commenting on the work itself, then you might be able to use it. Now there's some rules to what you can use. You can't just say, my favorite example is like a mo- movie reviewer. A movie reviewer can show a clip from the film that they're reviewing for purposes of commenting on that clip. So they could say, you know, hey, my favorite actress is, uh, is Sonia, here she is, and like show a clip from a movie you're in and uh, then say, the reason why she's so great is because of X, Y, and Z. And they could do that. And the film producer that, or the studio that owns the movie that you're in wouldn't necessarily be, be, be able to win uh, a lawsuit for that use because of the fair think, use defense. You would think but, that that's good advertising for the film. Well, yeah, sometimes it is, right? So a lot of times, like, it's a good thing. Um, you know, criticism and commentary doesn't always mean negative. Oftentimes it means a positive, right? Commentary mm-hmm. often positive. But they could only show enough of the clip of you to illustrate their point. What they couldn't do is say, you know, my Sonia is my favorite actress. She was in this movie and let it roll. And then show the whole film and then come back at the end <laughs> and go, wasn't she great? No, you can't do that. You can only use as much as you need to get the point across. What else do you think the audience should know? Because you have fed us so much information that I, I'm like trying to learn everything from you. This was like an incredible interview and it is a little going to be a little on the longer side, but I don't want to cut in any <laughs> of this out because I think the audience is going to get an incredible amount of information from this. Is there anything you want to say? And also, how can people contact you? Oh, right on. You know, I mean, look, we could go down the rabbit hole of copyright all day. It's just an interesting area. And it's something that I I enjoy thinking about. And and I find it fascinating and fun, mostly because the people that are involved in it are creative and interesting and fun. But also because at the end of the day, if somebody's copyright rights are affected, we're talking about something that has monetary and emotional value but isn't going to cost you your life if something bad happens to it. And so for that reason, it's an area of law that we can look at uh, in a way that maybe we don't look at things that are like criminal in nature or where somebody's going to lose their children, like the estate or, you know, when we're talking about, you know, end of life things like with estate planning. So I love this area of law. I think it's fascinating thinking about these things this morning and like having, having this chat and there's a million other areas of, entertainment and entertainment law that you and I have talked about that, that we can talk about. At the, and, uh, but, but I'm really excited that we were able to kind of deep dive on copyright because I think it is important. And I think a lot of people are interested in this area because it's kind of mysterious and weird, but ultimately it's the thing that makes it possible for people in the creative world to make money and make a living out of what they're doing. Without copyright, we would have to come up with a different way, but we would not have the system that we have now that allows people to make a living creating art, being in a film, making movies, making music, being an actor, you know, all of that uh, is because of the foundation of copyright law. So for good or for bad, it is an important piece of the landscape, especially for those of us who love and make a living working in the world of entertainment and art. 
So I'm super excited that we had to, we were able to have this conversation and um, didn't know all, what we were going to talk about this morning. And this is a, <laughs> Neither this did is a I actually. And, yeah. And so, so thrilled to, thrilled to be able to, to have this discussion. And again, my practice, I primarily work with people that are creative, talented, entrepreneurial, and lots of musicians and actors. And, and, and then on the other side, record labels and film studios. And as we're sitting here, I got pinged by two different musicians that want to talk about contract stuff. So I deal with a lot of contracts and I've got clients all over the country, which is wonderful for me because I love to travel. So I'm primarily up in Northern California, but I'm down in LA a lot and Nashville and New York and all kinds of places in between. And um, so it's a great job. I love what I do. I love being able to help out creative people. Practice that I work with is called Arc Law Group. Yeah, you can find us online, ARC lg.com is the website and if anybody has any follow-up questions or wants to talk about copyright i'm always around perfect thank you so much for being on this podcast on poetic resurrection and i have learned so much myself even though you and i are in contact often this is really great and i want to thank you thank you thank you thank you for listening to the poetic resurrection podcast available on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, and many other podcast platforms. Please visit us and subscribe to our newsletter at PoeticResurrection.com for the latest information and updates.